Well, let's get into the Word together this morning. Ari has covered uh, our time together in the Word, and what a sweet run-up to that as we shared the table together. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Peter. If you're a part of our church family on a regular basis, you know that we just started a brand new series in 1 Peter a couple of weeks ago, so we're on the front end of all of that. So take your Bible, go to the 1 Peter and chapter 1, and if you're still learning your way around, it's more toward the very end of your Bible, and you can kind of look for it there. If you need a Bible, Charlie's in the back. You'll be glad to share a copy of God's Word if you raise your hand, and be sure you retrieve that note page from your bulletin as well. And may the Lord bless our time together in the Word. God, why am I hurting Why is my life so hard? If that's not a question in the back of your mind today, I would say, that's fantastic. That's wonderful. That's marvelous. But just wait. Just wait a little while. It will be your question. It's coming As Job chapter 5 verse 7 said it, man is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly up from a fire. And we know that is true. And my guess is that on varying levels, many of us today could say, God, why am I hurting? Why is my life so hard? And by hurting, of course, we're not really talking so much about physical aches and pains, although those could play a part. But but mostly we're talking about that kind of hurt that, that is part of the dark night of the soul, the, the hurts of the heart, the ache when all you have is questions and answers are really slow in coming and, and you just hurt. We're talking about that. Peter, if you know a little bit about the background of this book, he's writing to first century Christians who in fact are hurting. They are being persecuted unjustly treated, unfairly slandered, cut off, excluded. They're being harassed by their communities and by the culture that they live in. Not because of anything they have done wrong, but because of the love that they have for Jesus, their determination to live out the values of Jesus in their life. That's why they're experiencing these things. These Christians desire to live for Jesus in a world that doesn't share their desire. And so Peter, Holy Spirit directed, writes this letter to help these believers live well in a hostile time, to bear up under unfair and unjust suffering, and and not just bear up under it, but actually live even more boldly for Jesus in the midst of it. It is a Bible book that looks pain squarely in the face and offers practical help to those who are hurting. Maybe... You are hurting today. Maybe you are struggling. Maybe you are battling a trial of some kind. You're searching for answers or at least some hope amidst the struggle. Well, Christianity has both answers and it brings hope. Do you believe that? Those of you who know Jesus, you believe that? Yes. So let's get a running start then at verses 6 and 7, which are going to take us right into this topic We've already spent time in verses 1 through 5, so verses 6 and 7 are, are going to be new ground for us. But let's get a running start at those verses by going back up to verse 1 
And uh, if you've not been with us up to this point, this will just be helpful for you uh, as we begin. Peter, verse 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now we're at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we'll stop right there. Holy Spirit, bring these words to life. That's our prayer. Now, verses 6 and 7 actually represent what we might call Peter's first frontal assault on how Christians do battle in the hurting times. And he's not going to stop now focusing on this topic till he gets to the end of chapter 5, which, by the way, is the end of the book. So Peter steps into this now by saying to these Christian exiles who are suffering in Asia Minor, and then indirectly he is saying the same things to us, verse 6, in this you rejoice. Now the word that Peter chooses for rejoice here is actually an amplified version of the normal Greek word for rejoice. And so as you read the word rejoice there in verse 6, think of it as rejoicing on steroids. Because that's exactly what Peter's wanting us to, to grasp. Jesus used this very same word in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And there he, it is translated, be exceedingly glad. Same word. Peter uses this word three times. He likes this word because it is much stronger than simply saying rejoice. And for you who are grammar buffs this morning, he places this this word in the, the middle voice in the Greek so that it carries the idea of continual exuberant joy and gladness. In fact, we could even translate it this way. Be constantly jubilant. Be exuberantly glad all of the time. That's the word and that's the thought. And, and then one more thing about this word. It's only ever used of spiritual joy, never of earthly happiness always has to do with spiritual joy. It always has to do with the joy that comes from our relationship with God. Never used of emotional feelings that come from a relationship with any other person. Only God, only the Lord Jesus. In fact, whenever we talk about joy, church family, in the Bible, we have to make sure that we distinguish it from happiness. Happiness and joy are not the same thing, are they? No. They are not. Though we oftentimes use these two words interchangeably, they are not the same. 
Positive circumstances produce what? Happiness. Right. If, if things are going good for me, well, man, I'm happy about that. If things aren't going good for me, well, then I'm, then I'm, I'm unhappy. Circumstances define my happiness. But a positive relationship with the living God through faith in Jesus has joy regardless of circumstances. Would you say that's true? Is that true for you? Yeah, that's true for you. Joy comes from, from deeply settled confidence that my life is safely hidden in Jesus and it's totally secure forever in the power of God. And we just celebrated that a moment ago here at the table. So Peter is calling here for a continual, ongoing, super exuberant, jubilant gladness of soul and rejoicing. And we ask the question, rejoicing like that over what? What would cause us to rejoice in that way? Because he says, in this you greatly rejoice. So what's the question? Well, what is the this, right? What is the this that we are going to exuberantly rejoice and be glad about? Well, he's referring to the salvation truths that we have already looked at in verses 2 through 5 together in the last couple of mornings. So I've broken out these salvation truths for you there on your note page. We'll also put them up on the screen. This will be a reminder for those who've been down the road with us. Uh, It'll be great information for those of you who haven't been here before. God in his great love and in his mercy, Peter has said, in eternity past made us elect exiles. Verse 2. We have been born again. Verse 3. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior, verse 3. We have an eternal inheritance waiting for us in heaven. We are being guarded by God himself, verse 5. Your salvation is going to be fully experienced when Jesus returns, also in verse 5. These truths, brothers and sisters, are our eternal possession, and they never perish, they can never be defiled, they never fade, and they are never going to be taken away because they are protected by the power of God. And that's what Peter says in verses 2 through 5. We can be constantly jubilant, continually rejoicing in this, no matter what hard times might come our way. So, brothers and sisters, what's the takeaway? Man, salvation and celebration, they go together, don't they? Salvation and joy, they go together. Rejoice in this, Peter says. Jesus said in the beautiful parable of lost things found in Luke chapter 15. You remember that? That that chapter is just nothing but a parable. The lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. Jesus says this. I tell you, there will be more. What's the next word? There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Joy and salvation. They go together. The Holy Spirit says to the Apostle Paul, rejoice how often? Always rejoice in the truth of your salvation. And in Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. 
being made right with God is a cause for joy all of the time. Amen? Amen. Now, sadly, we all know from personal experience that when sin comes into our lives, joy does what? Right? Joy takes a nosedive when sin enters our lives. David in the Old Testament expressed this so beautifully in Psalm chapter 51, verse 12, when coming out of a terrible season of sin in his own life, he cries out to God in in confession and repentance, and he says this from the heart. He says, Oh, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Give it back to me. My choices cause me to lose that joy. It can be forfeited by sin. And at that point, brother or sister, you know what we have to do. We have to go to the Lord and we get on our knees and in brokenness we confess our sin. We repent of our choices. And that joy then gets restored. And how glad we are for that. Where are you looking for your joy today? Especially if you are in a hurting season in your life. Where are you looking for joy? Are you looking for joy in the midst of your circumstances? I will just tell you right now that joy does not live there. You'll never find your joy in your circumstances. But when we realize, and this is Peter's point, when we realize our joy is waiting for us in our protected salvation, the riches of that, Paul calls it our, or Peter calls it our inheritance here, when we are looking for our joy in our spiritual inheritance, man, nothing can touch that. Nothing can take that away. The marvelous promise of God to every believer is that we have an eternal, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us inheritance. And therein lies our joy. Rejoice in this, Peter says. So if you are in a hurting time, Instead of looking at the scary circumstances, why not look at your protected inheritance? Why not spend your time thinking in that direction? That's really what Peter is is encouraging. He's not asking us, for sure, to, to pump ourselves up with some kind of a false emotion here. And I hope we all get that. He's not talking about some kind of artificial or insincere joy. He's not talking about pretending to have a joy that isn't real because we really can't manufacture joy anyhow. That's impossible. As we're going to see in a moment, we're not supposed to deny our pain. No one should pretend that it doesn't hurt, that the season is real, it's, it's sorrow-filled, and, and there's grief in the middle of it. We don't deny that. But Peter is saying, brother or sister, decide where you are going to look. Are you going to look at your circumstances? Or are you going to look at your relationship with your God through faith in Jesus? Where are you going to look? So to kind of give this a little bit more body, um, imagine that you're traveling on a train and you're in one of those really cool observation cars. You know the ones that have the all glass top on it? Have you ever been in a train like that where you're just surrounded by windows? So imagine you're on one of those. And imagine that this train that you're on is passing through the mountains. 
And on this this side of the, the, the car, as you're looking forward on this side, all the windows on this side are, are, are facing the cliff of this mountain. The, the tracks have been cut into the side of the mountain, and all there is is this giant, dark, huge mass of granite, and it's right there by the side of the train, and it's just speeding past, and it's a blur. So when you look out this side of the window, that's what you're going to see. But then if you look out on the other side, man, you notice that the tracks and the train are looking out over an incredible valley. Beautiful, green, trees, forests, lake, rivers. All of that is out there. You're in this car. Which side of the train are you going to look out of? Huh? Which side? Now, now, some might choose to look at that, that dark blur going off on, the, on this side of the train. But if you really want to enjoy the moment, you're going to be looking out over this side. You're going to be looking out those windows and taking in that view. There's another option. You don't have just one window to look out of. Peter says, suffering Christian, look at your new life in Jesus your new hope, your new wealth, your new security. Look at your eternal inheritance. How silly it is to sit miserable and tormented because we choose to look out the wrong window. That's Peter's point. Where are you looking for joy, brother, sister? Where are you looking for joy? In the midst of your your daily life and in the midst of trouble. Colossians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 puts it like this. Set your minds, and then what are the next few words? On the things that are above. That's where you go. You look out that window. Not on the things that are on earth, for your life is hidden with Christ in God. We say amen. Amen. We have the promise of a full eternal salvation reserved for us in the safest place in the universe, the the heaven of God. Nothing can happen to that inheritance and nothing can happen to us because we are guarded by God himself. What a source of joy. What a practical help in the hurting times of my life. Whether I'm a Christian in the first century being persecuted or a Christian in the 21st century facing the trials of my life. What a great practical help. Peter says, in this you rejoice. Though now, second part of verse 6, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. The second part of verse 6 ushers us into another practical help in the, the hurting times. And you see it there near the bottom of your, your note page. God has a way of saying things with an economy of words. And this is, this is a great illustration of, of him doing that. Just about everything we need to know about life's trials are in this one verse. And when we know the truth about something, well, that's always going to be helpful. Far better than a lie. And so what are the truths that Peter tells us about here concerning trials in our life? Well, he lays out four truths. The first is chronological. It has to do with time. In this you rejoice, though now for, what are the next three words? A little while you have been grieved. What is Peter saying? He's saying that trials don't last forever, right? That's what he's saying. They don't last forever. The duration of a trial is finite. 
When we are in the midst of a trial, though, they feel like they're forever, don't they? They, they, it feels like, oh, man, it, it's never going to change. This will never be different. It'll never get better. I'm always going to feel this way. The pain is never going to go away. It's forever. But that simply is not true about our trials. And we need to know that. Trials are for a season. They are transient. In fact, check out. What Peter says a few chapters later in chapter 5, verse 10, he reinforces this truth and he says, after you have suffered for what? A little while. The God of all grace will confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After a little while. In other words, the hurting time is not forever. Fellow Christian, suffering in the grand picture of life and in the next life, It's temporary and and, and momentary for us. It will not always be like this. It will not always feel like this. In the really big picture, we can also say that for the Christian, all suffering is temporary and all joy is eternal. Amen? As a Christian who's in Jesus, all suffering is temporary and all joy is eternal. It does not last forever. This thing called a trial or a hurt. Second truth, trials are painful. Peter acknowledges that. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been what? Grieved. You've been grieved by various trials. Grieved. You know, the Bible will always be honest with us about human pain. It it doesn't sugarcoat it. It doesn't ignore it. It just squares off against it and says it's real. And Peter is going to tell us in chapter 4, verse 12, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trials that you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. If you love Jesus, you're going to hurt from time to time. That's just the way it is. What do trials feel like? Well, they hurt. They just hurt. They feel like grief. They feel like Sadness, they feel like frustration, like injustice, like discouragement, like anxiety, like fear, like distress. Trials bring pain. But that should not surprise us. That's the truth. We acknowledge that. These pains will prod us and drive us to Jesus ultimately. We'll get into that in a moment. There's a third truth. Trials come in many forms. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by what? Various trials, Peter says. Now, the word that Peter uses here is an interesting word. It's a word that means many colored, many colored. Hurting times come, Peter says, in many colors. Would you agree? (laughs) I think you would. They can be physical. They can be relational, they can be parental, financial, marital, political, racial, domestic. And as was the case of the Asia Minor Christians, wow, their trials were spiritual. They were, they were persecutions for loving Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul gives us a short list of his trials. Everything from beatings and stonings and imprisonments to shipwrecks to cold and hunger and and sleep deprivation all because he loved the lord jesus his trials were of many colors 
Do you have various trials in your life, many colored trials in your life? Sure you do, and so do I, because that's the truth. Our trials come in various colors. So Peter's giving us an abbreviated theology class on trials and hurts. It's helpful for us to know that though the trials are painful and though they're real and though they are multicolored, it's really helpful to know they don't last forever. They have a season. But the most important truth that Peter gives us here is hidden in those words, if necessary. You might want to circle those words in your Bible or highlight them in some way. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, if necessary implies that there is a purpose behind our hurting times and that someone is making a decision to take us into those places, if necessary. Someone is making a judgment about that. Who is the someone? Who do you think the someone is? God. It is God. Again, what Peter told us in chapter 5, verse 10 a moment ago affirms this. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If necessary, tells us that God has a purpose for permitting trials to come into the life of a Christian. Do you believe that today, brother? Do you believe that, sister in Jesus? That God has a purpose for every trial that he takes you into? That's really helpful. That's super helpful. To put it another way, trials and pain have a so that. A so that. What do you mean? By What do you mean? Flip your note page over and look at verse 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials are God's permitted revealers and purifiers of our faith. As you see it there at the top of your note page. Let me say it again. Trials are God's permitted revealers and purifiers of our faith. Trials have a purpose. So that. And brothers and sisters, if we could could just fully embrace that single truth, just that one, it would transform how we look at the hurting times of our life. If we could just get our hearts and minds around that one truth. In verse 7, Peter draws an analogy between the fire of a trial and how gold is tested and purified by fire. So let's, let's start with that picture. The, let's start with the gold. Gold in the first century was the, the most valuable substance that there was. Uh, it was also the most enduring. So if you've ever seen uh, the jewelry that came out of King Tut's tomb, you know that in the ancient world they really knew how to work gold how to to purify it and form it. Like today, in ancient times, they would test and purify gold with fire. 
Gold doesn't come out of the earth pure, does it? It has other elements that are contaminating that gold, and so those elements have to be removed. Impurities have to be taken out. Well, how do you get those elements? How do you get those other impure elements out of the gold? Well, you put it to heat, don't you? Extreme heat. The gold is heavier than the impure metals that are also a part of it. They sink to the bottom of the crucible. The impurities rise to the top. The refiner scrapes off that impurity. It's called dross or slag. And so he skims that off, and the gold that's remaining is is pure. What does the refiner do? He puts more heat to the gold. And he, he heats it up, and he melts all of that, and more impurities rise to the top. And he's... He scrapes off those impurities, and he does this a number of times. And each time that the dross is scraped off the top, the carrot quality of the gold increases. The purity of the gold increases. It becomes more valuable. It becomes more fully and completely pure gold. Fire reveals the gold, and fire refines the gold. Peter is using that picture and he's saying that our faith is like the gold and our trials are like the fire. Do you get the picture? Our God is the refiner with a capital R and he's applying the heat to our lives through these trials. Fire reveals the genuineness of gold. Trial reveals the genuineness of our faith. Now, you don't have to be around the church very long before you see the truth of all of this. A family goes through a hard time in our church family, a rebellious child, a a lost job, maybe a a threatening illness, a a spurious lawsuit, perhaps a devastating accident, whatever the, the various colors of the trial might be. There is a kind of fiery trial that a family in our church is going through. Something is going to be revealed through this process. What's going to be revealed? The quality and the purity of faith in that family's life. The response of that family to the trial is going to speak volumes. It's going to speak volumes to them and it's going to speak volumes to us. Now, this doesn't mean that this family is a bunch of super Christians who don't, who don't struggle in the midst of their trial, who don't cry, who don't have fears and tears. But real faith, genuine faith, pure faith's impulse is to turn to God in the midst of the trial. And the trial brings that faith out in a new way. These turn to their church family and to their Christian friends to be praying for them. They don't... They don't give up on God. They they press deeper into him. A new depth of faith is revealed by virtue of the trial. In a sense, they didn't know they had it in them, that kind of a faith, but God brought it out through the trial. The trial reveals, the trial purifies, and what comes out of that is beautiful. It's pure faith. More pure than it was when they went in. Though it was painful to go through. Can things go the other way? Can the story go in a different direction than what I just shared? Of course it can. Life can get hot for a professing Christian. 
and the professing Christian thinks, man, this is not what I signed up for. Uh, the, God, God apparently doesn't love me anymore. The Bible's not true. This has gone on way too long. I quit. It can go that way. What's happened when that goes that way? Well, the fire of a trial has revealed the quality of the faith. Trials are great revealers. And they are great purifiers. In modern gold refining, they heat the gold to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So let's pretend for just a moment, church family, that we could talk to the gold in the crucible as it's in the fire. We could have a conversation. So what would we hear if we talked to the gold in the crucible? Man, this is really hot. Right? This really hurts. Get me out of here. Why is this happening? Why do I get this 2,000 degrees and silver only gets 1,500 degrees? Please stop this. Clearly, refiner, you don't love me. Right? (laughs) But the refiner knows that the only way purification happens is by heat. And he knows that the value of this gold increases every time the heat is applied and the gold is more purified. Its carrot content goes way up. Its worth increases with every application of the fire. And so Peter says that our faith is more valuable than gold. Gold perishes in the end, but saving faith is eternal. When the heat is turned on us We say, man, that hurts. Stop. There must be a mistake. Why me? Why my, my loved ones? Why my family? Why? And God's answer, as the refiner with a capital R, you may not realize it, my child, but the quality of your faith is far more important to me than your comfort. Has God ever said that to you? The quality of your faith is far more important to me than your comfort. I'm going to reveal your faith and I'm going to refine your faith and purify your faith. And so this is going to be a short-term pain for a long-term gain. And that's what faith believes in the midst of trial. Now, church family, this does not mean that we go out looking for ways to hurt, right? That's not what this means. I want to have the purest faith possible, so I'm going to go out and I'm going to find trials. I'm going to self-refine. No, no. That sounds really weird, right? (laughs) Because it is. That's not biblical at all. We'll never have to go looking for a faith-refining trial. Agreed? It's always going to come after us. It will always find us. We yield to God's perfect sovereign will, his timing in all of our trials. We don't go looking for them. Now, while we're maybe kind of on a little bit of a sidetrack here, nor should we, brothers and sisters, try to play the Holy Spirit and seek to interpret the trials that we see going on in our, the lives of our brothers and sisters. That's not our job. To, to step into their life and say, here's why you're going through this trial. This is what God's trying to teach you. You need to do da-da-da-da-da-da. 
we're not the Holy Spirit. So we don't need to do that. In fact, a great lesson for us is just to look at the life of Job. He had three friends in the midst of incredible suffering, and what did they do? Did they bring him comfort? No, they did not, because he did not need their counsel or their interpretation on his suffering. He just needed them to sit with him, right? That's all. So we don't need to, 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 to try to offer some kind of counsel or explanation for our brother or sister who is hurting. They don't need that. What they really need is for us to, know, for, for us to just come alongside of them and be with them and love on them in the midst of their trial. Just, just be there. I love you and I'm here. And we can all do that, can't we? We can all do that for a hurting brother or sister. Trials are God-permitted revealers and purifiers of our faith. Again, 1 Peter 5.10, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace will himself perfect, confirm, and establish you. God has a purpose in every trial we go through. Do you believe it? Do you really believe it? It's like that old saying says, God loves us just the way we are, but too much to leave us that way, right? (laughs) James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says the same thing, even drawing upon Peter's refining analogy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know in the heart, in the head, that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, Perseverance must finish its work so that, so that, ah, remember that word, that phrase? So that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God's permitted trial in our lives humbles us. It weans us from worldly things. It shows us what we really love. It teaches us to appreciate our blessings. Trials make us more empathetic with others who are hurting. Trials call out our sin. They bring to the surface our sin so that it can be confessed and scraped off like dross. Trials turn our gaze towards heaven. Trials do all of those things, but the thing that trials do most of all is purify our faith. A Christian's trials always serve a purpose. That's good to know. And if we claim to have faith that believes in a Savior who suffered beyond all imagining according to the will of his Father in order to accomplish our salvation, if we believe that about God, then can we not trust this same Father when he wills to refine and purify our faith through a trial? Can we not trust him? We can't. We can. On your note page, I just pose a few questions that we might want to ask ourselves as we move through these two verses. Uh, Am I thinking like Peter is thinking? Uh, Here's some questions that might draw that out. Questions to ask when the heat is on. Am I looking at this from an earthly or an eternal perspective, this trial that I'm going through? Am I looking at it as as, as a moment in time or am I looking at it from an eternal perspective? Do I really believe my trials are ultimately sourced in God? Do I really believe that? Do I believe that trials in my life are necessary in order for me to be who God really wants me to be? They're necessary. 
Is my perspective shaped by my confidence in God's sovereign and good plan for my life? Do I truly want to grow spiritually more than I want to live comfortably? Ooh, that's a great question. And how about this one? Do I aspire to a high carrot content when it comes to my faith? Carrot, K-A-R-A-T, the carrot content of my faith. Is it high? Do I want it to be higher? Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. According to the last part of this verse, what is the goal of a purified faith? What is the goal? Say it, church. It's not that hard. It's the glory of Jesus, isn't it? It's the glory of God. Praise, glory, and honor to Jesus Christ. So a fourth practical help for us as we move through our hurting times is to remember that what Jesus won at the cross and at the resurrection, a people for himself bought with his blood and deserving of he's deserving of eternal praise because he did that for us. We need to remember that. We will one day get to give to him precisely what he deserves because the Father has been unrelenting in his commitment to refine us and purify us so that we can offer up this praise. I need to remember that. I am being purified so that I can one day praise, glorify, and and honor Jesus to the fullest measure. Is that a desire of my heart? The glory and honor and praise goes to the one who gave us our faith in the first place and then skillfully refines it and purifies it through trial. 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, as you encounter trials for his sake, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory gets revealed. When When he comes, when he returns, you will get to praise him. Church family, would that we could, each one of us could see our hurting times through First Peter eyes. Not focused on our pain, but on the unspeakable riches of our salvation. Not looking at the granite wall on this side, but looking out those windows into that incredible view that is God's salvation. Looking at our trials and realizing that they're temporary but they're necessary for they are our loving father's way of making us strong and ready and unshakable for the day when we see King Jesus and cry out in praise of him with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. Amen. Yeah. In this, we rejoice. Let's pray together. Oh, thank you for the riches of your word. Heavenly Father, thank you for letting us feast on these truths this morning. And and Heavenly Father, help us who are so prone to to think small, to, to think earthly thoughts, so prone to miss the good you hide in our suffering. Help us. Help us to live in the joy of an eternally protected salvation, the joy of that inheritance, to live in the settled peace of a proven by 
fire faith. I especially ask you to help us as a church family, Father, to to be ministers of your grace to those who might be among us today and feel like they're in the very flames of a fire too great for them to bear. Show us how we can help, how we can come alongside and love well, being your hands and your voice and your touch. We look forward to the day when with purified faith we see you, Lord Jesus, face to face and we give you the glory and the honor and the praise that you deserve. In this, we rejoice. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. Let's stand together, church, and let's rejoice.